Good morning, everybody. We are continuing our winter sermon series on the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, we'll go through whole books of the Bible during semesters, uh, but during this winter in between series, we're going over the Holy Spirit. Um, if you haven't already done so, I do want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the uh, text that Cruz read, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. That'll be on page 977 if you're using a Bible from under your seat. And I do want to encourage you to follow along with me as I preach. Um, and it might be specifically helpful to use the Bible under your seat because I'm going to use the ESV, which is what those are. Um, all the translations are great, but I'm going to go phrase by phrase, and so it might be helpful so you can follow along to use one of those Bibles on page 977, Ephesians chapter 2. Normally, I try to give an outline at the beginning of a sermon to give you all a concept of where I'm going, but since I only have two verses to actually preach through, I'll just give you one summary statement. God dwells in his people together. So that's where we're going. God dwells in his people together, and we're going to talk about what that means, but that's where we're going. Before I dig into the text, would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are tr a trinity. Thank you, Father, that you're God. Thank you, Jesus, that you are God. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are God. Thank you for this opportunity to dig into a specific aspect of who you are, the person, the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for this opportunity to learn about you specifically. Teach us how you dwell in us. And Lord, show us why that matters. Show us why it's significant that you dwell in us. And would you make us live in light of the fact that you dwell in us? And make us live like you dwell in our brothers and sisters together with us. Help us to live according to your word and according to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 21 and 22. In your name we pray, amen. So one of the first things to notice about our sermon text is that it starts in the middle of a sentence. That's why Cruz read verses 19 to 22. But our text is verses 20 to 21, and I'm glad he read the full sentence so that we could get a flow of the thought. But without verses 19 and 20, we would ask, well, okay, about verse 21, who is this whom? In whom the whole structure? Who is whom? What is the structure? What's going on there? So let's back up for a moment and take a look at the paragraph that we're nested in. Verses 11 to 22 is what I'm looking at. In these verses, Paul, he's the author of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 1, tells us that. He wrote a number of New Testament books. The letter to the Ephesians is one of them. Paul is reminding the Ephesians that before Jesus came, they were a hopeless people because they were Gentiles. In other words, they were not Jews. Now, we talked about this in our Nehemiah sermon series. Gentiles were not included in the Old Testament promises the same way that the Jews were. They could still receive the promises if they joined the Jewish community of faith, but they had to do it through the Jewish community of faith, effectively taking on a Jewish identity. The Ephesians, right before the New Testament times during the Old Testament, had not done that. And so Paul says in chapter 2, verse 12 of Ephesians, Remember, Ephesians, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope 
and without God in the world. They were alienated from God's promise because they were Gentiles. And then verses 13 to 18, God goes on to explain that he has made one community of promise, which includes Jews and Gentiles alike, rather than a primarily Jewish community. So now it's both. And then we come to verse 19, which is not yet our sermon text, but it's the same sentence. So let's dig into the train of thought here. In particular, asking two questions. Number one, who is whom? And second, what is the structure? Who is whom and what is the structure? So read with me in verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 2. So then, you, Ephesians, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Okay, so that's, that's the first answer. That's the structure. The household is the structure. So the household of God, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, okay, so in whom, that's talking about Jesus we see, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, in whom? In whom is Jesus, the whole structure, the household, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so, to reiterate verse 21 in our words, in Jesus, the whole household of God, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So the whole structure, that phrase refers to all Christians together. In other words, people, believing people, Christian people, consisting of both Jew and Gentile. Now, leading up to verse 21, the focus has been on explaining how Jews and Gentiles relate to God's promises, but not anymore, not by verse 21. By the time verse 21 comes, the focus is to show that all Christians combined make up the structure. So all Christians make up the structure. We learned about Jews and Gentiles already, but now he's making a more general point. All Christians make up this household of God, this structure. And verse 21 also calls it a holy temple, if you see that. Grows into a holy temple. So the structure is a temple made up of Christians. That is significant that it's a temple because in the Old Testament, God dwelt or he lived, if you will, specifically in the temple. And now he's saying, in the same way that he used to dwell inside the physical temple, now he dwells inside this new temple. People, that's his new temple. I'm going to show you two texts where we see God dwelling, specifically initiating his dwelling place. The first text I'm going to show you is in the Old Testament where God initiates dwelling into the temple. The second text is going to be God initiating dwelling inside of people. So the first text is about God dwelling in the temple, initiating his dwelling in the temple. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. This will be on your screens to my right and left. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, Solomon just built the temple, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord. That's another phrase that also means the temple, house of the Lord. Because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. It filled the temple. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
So that's how God initiated his presence in the temple during the Old Testament. Specifically, with fire, he initiated his presence in the temple. Fire comes down, and then he starts dwelling in the temple from there and remains there. So fire, and then God's presence in the temple. Now in the New Testament, God dwelt specifically in believers. He continues to do that today. But here's how God initiates his presence in people in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, this will also be in your screens, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, that is the disciples, the people who believed in Jesus, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, Again, God initiates his presence with fire, but this time he doesn't do it in a physical temple. He does it in people. So on this side of Pentecost, that is on this side of Acts chapter 2, God does not physically dwell in the temple especially or particularly. He dwells in Christians. He dwells in people who believe. If you'll let me use this language, there are three types of, of dwelling that God does in people. First of all, individual believers. The second type is purposeful gatherings of believers collectively. And then the third type is in the church as a whole, throughout history and across the globe. So individuals, purposeful gatherings of believers, and the church as a whole. In all three of these types in the Bible, God refers to those people as a temple. Our text in Ephesians 2.21 is talking about the third type, the church as a whole. But let me show you all three of the types from Scripture. I'm going to use texts from 1 Corinthians because we've gone through a sermon series somewhat recently through that book. So the first case, God dwelling in individual believers like you and I. I think we understand this type the best. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. It reads, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So God is dwelling within individual believers. And he calls their body a temple. He dwells in it. The second type, purposeful gatherings of believers collectively. Another text from 1 Corinthians where Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church for being divisive within their congregation. That's the context here. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17. I've kind of added in brackets you all to show that the you is plural in the original Greek. He's talking to the collective gathering of the Corinthian church. Do you all not know that you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you all? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and here it is, you all are that temple. The Corinthians' local church is described as God's temple, not just the individuals, but them as a gathering. They are a temple. And then in our text this morning, God's temple is referred to as the church as a whole. 
throughout history and across the globe. It says the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. That's the entire structure, not just individual pieces of it, but the whole thing combined and collectively. So that's the third type of people temple, if you will. So God doesn't only dwell in individual believers. He does that. God does not only dwell in local congregations or gatherings of Christians, though he also does that. God dwells as well in the church as a whole. And we also see the phrase being joined together. We are each individually a part of a pretty grand reality. We as a combined people of God house God together. And every single Christian from any point in history, from any part of the world, is a part of that, even dead ones, funny enough. In verse 20, the apostles and the prophets are included, and they died at the very beginning of the church. So every single Christian ever is a part of this temple together, as verse 21 says, together. There are several reasons this is significant. First of all, it's just pretty cool that God is dwelling in all of us everywhere from all time collectively. That's just, that's just cool. But aside from it being cool, it's not only cool. Also, maybe by way of application, there are some Christians that are a lot different than we are, that are a lot different than you are. There may even be some Christians that you would rather have nothing to do with, if we're honest. I think a lot of us feel that way. But Ephesians 2.21 tells us that we are joined together even with those Christians. I think this text should motivate us to think, you know, this person really gets on my nerves or I really don't jive with them, but they are just as much a part of God's temple as I am. Even those Christians whose conduct is different than yours, you might say their conduct is worse. Even those Christians whose theology is different than yours, you might say their theology is worse. They also are a part of God's temple together with you. They are just as much a part of God's temple as you are, as I am. And so whether we like it or not, God has joined us together, and we need to treat every Christian that way. This concept might be compared to emperor penguins in Antarctica. Hear me out. Yeah, I hear you chuckling. But, okay, so here they are in the freezing cold. You might have seen pictures of this before. They hold their eggs on their feet, and they huddle for warmth in like the minus 60 with wind chill. You know, it's cold out there, Antarctica. I've never been, but the penguins have, and it's cold. But they each carry an egg, right? So maybe that could be compared to the individual value that each Christian has of having the Holy Spirit dwelling in each of us individually. But in addition to that, the penguins collectively carry the future of their species together. So we also collectively have God in us together. In the case of the penguins, the outermost in the huddle are serving their friends by taking the cold for them, while the inner ones are warming up and preparing to do the same for their friends. Now, I'll be real, I don't know about the motivations in the hearts of the penguins, okay? I don't know if they're consciously determined to love their neighbor by taking the cold for them. Maybe they just get pushed to the outside by grumpy neighbors. That's fine. But as people, we can have motivations that are pure. We can do something like this as a collective people of God, protecting and serving each other for the sake of God who dwells among all of us together. 
We're called to do this as individuals, just Christian to Christian. We're called to do this as churches from congregation to congregation. We're called to do this with the church as a whole by helping Christians all around the world. This is not superiority, but unity. Unity around one purpose, to host God together. Later in Ephesians, we are explicitly commanded to be unified in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I, therefore, this is Paul writing to them, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Here it is, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We might not agree about everything. We might not approve of all of the same things that they approve of, that others approve of. We might not even like each other, but we must be eager to maintain unity with each other nonetheless. Eager, that's like a proactive word, eager, looking forward to being excited about, being motivated to do that. This is valuing each other because you and them, whoever they are, together host God. If God dwells here, we're, we're hosting Him in a, in a sense. Imagine you're hosting a dinner party with someone that you refused to talk to. Your guest shows up, and everyone's eating dinner silently. That'd be awkward, especially for your guest. Or imagine all throughout the meal, you and your co-host are arguing now the whole time over whose food tastes better. That's not fun for your guest either. They're just watching you fight the whole time. Some hospitality. This is what we do to God when we refuse to unify with other Christians and we refuse to bless other Christians, whether it be individuals, other churches, or just other types of Christians, whatever that looks like for you. God is sitting at the table watching us argue, saying something basically like, guys, I just want to dwell with you. So when we reject other Christians, we are fighting against what God is doing. He's joining us together. Let's not resist him. You remember Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 that we looked at here when God initiated his presence with people. That's also where he started joining people together. I think that's where he started to do Ephesians 2.21, that work. So this is right after the Holy Spirit comes down with fire in Acts chapter 2, now in verses 5 through 8. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, and that's the sound of the Holy Spirit coming down, at this sound the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? When God came down to enter his people, he brought them together. He removed their language boundary and let them communicate freely with each other. He united them. The moment he started building his temple, he started joining it together. He started it at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and he continues joining us together to this day. So let's receive that work of God. Let's love our Christian neighbors and allow God to join us together.
I want to highlight this word grows for a moment. It grows into a holy temple, it says. For one thing, it grows in size. I think we get that. That's intuitive. People get added to the church when they become Christians, and the the church grows in numbers that way. It started with the apostles and prophets, and it has continued increasing from there. Notice this word grows, is a, it's, it's present, it's active. The church is continually growing presently right now. We're part of that. And it's growing into a holy temple. I think we see some of this now. We see some of this holiness. We see some of this holy temple now. I mean, we see the glories of the global church growing. We see people coming to know Christ around the world We see local churches being planted, people joining our own church and trusting in Christ for the first time, people becoming Christians. So we see some of that holy temple that we're growing into. We see some of it. But at the same time, we're not quite there yet, are we? We are still growing into this holy temple, as verse 21 says. We're not totally there yet. After all, we see a lot of ways that the global church is not holy By now, many of you have heard about the report that came out last May about our denomination, the SBC, revealing, that report revealed that many SBC leaders have been perpetrators of sexual abuse and sexual assault. And what's more, others in the SBC covered it up and even demonized the victims. That is very unholy. The SBC is the largest Baptist denomination on the planet and the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S. That's a big part of the global temple. At least part of that global temple has not been a holy temple. So we've got work to do before we're a holy temple as a communal church, don't we? We do. And at the same time, if you remember from our 1 Corinthians sermon series, we saw that the Corinthians as well were very unholy. Let me give you a list of all their problems. Chapters 1 through 3. They trusted human wisdom at the expense of godly wisdom and deprioritized godly wisdom. Chapters 1 through 4, they divided as a church over which pastor they preferred. Chapter 5, one of them was actually having sex with his stepmom and everyone else approved of it. Chapter 6, they were suing each other over trivial cases. Chapter 7, they were saying everybody should be single, nobody should get married. Chapter 8, they cared more about their freedoms than they cared about loving each other. Chapter 10, they actively participated in pagan worship services as professing Christians. Chapter 11, they used communion as an opportunity to get drunk and to neglect the poor. Chapter 12, they overemphasized and misapplied spiritual gifts. Chapter 14, their worship service was so chaotic with people interrupting each other during the service that nobody could understand what was going on. And in chapter 15, some of them even said there was no resurrection of the dead. Some Christians. That's pretty unholy, isn't it? They were a pretty unholy people. But look at what God says about them. It is a warning, but look at what God says about them. We've looked at this text already. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. Do you all not know that you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you all? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you all are that temple. Amidst all those sins that I just listed off that come out of the book of 1 Corinthians, God still called them a holy temple, didn't he? And so we have 1 Corinthians 3 saying, Christians who sin are a holy temple. But we have Ephesians 2.21 here this morning saying we're growing into a holy temple. 
Corinthians says we are. Ephesians says we are becoming. Well, both are true. When Jesus saves you, for example, he really saves you. He makes you holy right there and right now. At the same time, though, your holiness is not fully realized yet. I mean, you still sin. Cruz prayed this way here. He said, we were once sinners. And it's not that we don't sin anymore. It's just not who we are. I think that was well said. We still sin, though. We're not fully holy in a realized way. We still sin even though we're forgiven, even though God made us holy. So on the one hand, you are a holy temple. And on the other hand, you're awaiting that time where you become fully holy. That's true of the church as well. David expressed the same feeling about the temple in Psalm chapter 27, verse 4. He says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. We talked about the house of the Lord. That phrase means temple. That I may dwell in the temple all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Carry on to the end of the chapter, verses 13 to 14. This is how David concludes that. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's future. I shall. Wait for the Lord, he says. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. He is waiting for the temple to come. But David had the temple in the form of the tabernacle directly within reach. He had access to it in the present, in the here and now. And yet, Psalm 27, 13, and 14, he says that he will wait for the Lord for that reality to fully come. David had the temple. He had the presence of God. He had access to it right there. And simultaneously, he longed for the fullest version of it with unlimited access to it. And in much the same way, Although the church is holy in the here and now, it is also awaiting complete holiness. Because I brought up the SBC, I want to clarify that the abuse that's been perpetrated in the SBC is horrific. I do not think that our response should be, well, Corinth was pretty bad, and they were still holy, so let's give the SBC a break. Absolutely not. Paul demanded discipline upon perpetrating members of the Corinthian church. And so should we upon perpetrating members of the SBC. And as you may know, there is discussion here at Mercy House about possibly leaving the SBC in light of these disclosures. And that is totally appropriate. Even in light of our text today, which talks about unity, I think that is appropriate. I understand there are valid reasons for leaving and for staying. I've been at the summit meetings at our church where we've talked about this, so I'm not here to advise one way or the other. But I am here to say that a few things about this text. One, a desire to maintain unity should be a part of our decision to leave or to stay. The text is here. It, it's clear, yes, we should maintain unity. It should be a part of our decision to leave or to stay. But a desire to maintain unity should not be the only part of that decision. It should not be the only part of that decision to leave or stay because serious sin warrants serious consequences. As a church, we need to pray and decide about what those are. So this call to unity, though, does not automatically mean that we stay in the SBC. I, I want to make that clear. It doesn't automatically mean that. It, but if we do leave, let's not say with 1 Corinthians 12, 21, I have no need of you. In other words, you're not a valuable part of the body. 
Now, you might not like the SBC. I understand there are great reasons for that. But keep in mind that even the SBC, at least part of it, is a part of God's global church. And the SBC, along with every other Christian group, is joined together with us, with you, with me, to be a dwelling place for God. So no matter what we decide, let's treat them that way. One more thing to point out about our verse 21 this morning. In whom, we've talked about in whom, that means in Jesus. So in Jesus, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That means that it is people who are in Jesus that make up the temple. That's Christians. Well, how do you become a Christian? How do you become a part of this temple that God dwells in? In chapter 1, verses 13 to 14 of Ephesians, Paul says this, and he answers the question. In him, he's talking about Jesus, in Jesus you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Jesus, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So how do you become a part of the temple? How do you become a Christian? Two steps. One, you hear the gospel. Two, you believe it. You hear the gospel, you believe the gospel. When that happens, this text says the Holy Spirit seals you and you're saved. It's the Holy Spirit who compels you of the truth of the gospel when he enters into you. Now, we've looked at all these texts already during the sermon, but I want you to see that this has been true the whole time about the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verses 3 through 2. As divided tongues excuse me, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It's the Holy Spirit specifically who comes down to dwell inside believers. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, we've looked at this one as well. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Here too, in individuals, it's the Holy Spirit dwelling inside. And then 1 Corinthians 3, 16, we've read this as well. Do you all not know that you all are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you all? Again, the Holy Spirit dwells in them all. It's the Holy Spirit Now, that is part of why verse 22 concludes with the phrase, you're being built up into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who builds this temple. If you recall from our Nehemiah sermon series, a man named Zerubbabel was tasked by God to build the temple. This is the physical Old Testament temple. We went through Nehemiah together. Nehemiah built the wall. Zerubbabel built the temple. That was in Ezra. But in the book of Zechariah, God tells Zerubbabel how the temple is going to get built. This is the physical temple. And he says this, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. That's how the temple is going to get built. This text is foreshadowing. This is foreshadowing from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Even the physical Old Testament temple, although it was made of human stones, God says it was built by his Holy Spirit. Well, Zechariah 4, 6 is fulfilled now. The Spirit indeed is building the temple because he has built us, believers. This theme of the Holy Spirit building this temple, the church, has been a long time coming. 
And now we live in such a time where God dwells in all of us, believers. This is a change from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, believers did not have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them. God would dwell with them and upon them, but not within them. They were still believers in the Old Testament, don't get me wrong. They were saved and all that. They just didn't have God in them. That's not how it worked in the Old Testament. Because God was in the physical temple. Ezekiel 36 foreshadows that in the time of the Old Testament, this was going to change. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, it says this, And I, that's God, I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. Within you, that's different, within you. I will in the future, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This was predicted a long time ago in the time of Ezekiel, and it's happening now. If you believe that you are a sinner who needs to be saved, or maybe if I could use language from our text, if you believe that you're someone who is not entirely holy, if you're not entirely a holy temple, if you believe that you are unholy and that Jesus died on the cross to save you, to make you holy, if you really believe that, you are a Christian and you are a part of the temple that God dwells in. That's the temple he's been talking about from the Old Testament to today. If you are not a Christian this morning, you are not a part of this temple. You're like the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 12, which reads, you are separated from Christ, Paul says about their past life. You were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You're hopeless if you are not in Christ if you refuse to believe in Jesus, you will not be saved into eternal life, but rather punished into eternal destruction. And so I want to warn you of that. But I don't just want to warn you. I also want to invite you into the glories of knowing God and having God himself, the creator of the whole universe, living inside of you personally and specifically, but also living inside of every Christian ever collectively with you. You can be a part of that. We at Mercy House would love to welcome you into that. Even if right now you're believing in Jesus for the first time, we would love to help you get started in your walk with God. You're welcome to talk to me after service. I'll be in the back during communion. Several others will be with me. We would love to be a resource to you. Many people have helped me personally along in my journey with God, and I'd love to do that for you if you'd let me. So that's an invitation. Become a part of this temple today. So, verse 21 explains how the church as a whole, across history and throughout the globe, grows into a temple for God to dwell in. That's what verse 21 explains. It explains how it works. But in verse 22, things get personal for the Ephesians. Here it is, verse 22, if you'll read it with me. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
Now, we've talked about what most of the phrases in this sentence mean. We've, we've talked about what it means to be in him, that's in Christ. We've talked about being built into a dwelling place for God. We've talked about together. We've talked about by the Spirit. The difference in verses 21 and 22 is that in 22, it's kind of like high-level information. This is how things work. In verse 22, so in verse 21, it's high-level information. In verse 22, God tells the Ephesians, this is true for them personally. It's not only true about the church as a whole, but also you, Ephesians, this is true for you also. And Mercy House, by way of application, this is true of you personally. In Jesus' Mercy House, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This temple is not just some massive, impersonal conglomerate. This temple it is grand, yes, but there's a personal togetherness that verse 21 and 22 explicitly talk about together. It is huge, it is grand, yes, but it is also personal. God lives inside you, for one thing. That's personal. It doesn't get much more personal than inside you. It's like, all right, you're close, but he's in. That's personal, for one thing. But also, number two, John 13, 18 says this. Jesus says, about those whom he's going to save. I know whom I have chosen. Jesus chooses us specifically. That's very personal, isn't it? You're selected. There's more. Hebrews 11. Chapter 11, verses 39 to 40. The context of Hebrews 11 is that they have just, the author, God, has just enumerated a number of faithful people, people who were heroes of the faith, who did mighty works of God by faith. And then the chapter concludes with verses 39 to 40. All these people, verse 39, and all these, that is the faithful people, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Have you ever heard the phrase, the party don't start till I walk in? <laughs> You're laughing. That's heaven. Sorry, you know? I mean, that's what's happening. These did not receive what was promised. God's waiting for everybody to arrive. It's true about heaven. It's like, oh, that's like ideal. That's kind of cocky. We all wish it was like that. But that's how it is with God. The party doesn't start until you walk in. He's waiting for each of us to get to heaven to give us the fullness of heaven. Now, to be clear, the moment a believer dies, they immediately go to be with the Lord. Philippians 1.23 says that. So it's not that they're not with God. But the fullness of what's promised in heaven is not given until every single one of us is there. God is saying, I don't just want to give the heroes of the faith the fullness of heaven. I don't just want to give Jews the fullness of heaven. I, I want to give all those people the fullness, but I want to give everyone, each of you, the fullness of heaven. That's very personal. And that includes each of you. That's personal. God is waiting for you personally, along with everyone who would ever believe. That's true about you if you're a Christian this morning. But the real fullness of heaven that we're waiting for, that we're waiting to receive, that's described in Revelation chapter 21, where it describes the new Jerusalem. So the temple, a little side information, the temple in Solomon's temple 
where God dwelt in the Old Testament? It was a perfect cube. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20 says that. It was, it was a cube where God dwelt. Well, the new Jerusalem, that massive city that's going to descend out of the sky from God where we're going to dwell eternally with him, it's a massive cubic city. Revelation 21, 16, it's a cube. So in a sense, the whole thing is a temple. Revelation 21, chapter 22, excuse me, chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. They read this. And I saw no temple in the city. He's talking about New Jerusalem, the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. There's no temple there because God will just be everywhere in that city. You don't have to go to the temple to find him. You're in it. That's, what it's, that's where we're headed. And we aren't even going to need lighting because God is so powerfully present everywhere that the whole place is illuminated by him. There will be no more scandals like we have with the Southern Baptist Convention Everyone will be made completely holy. We're not even going to be frustrated with each other. We're all going to be perfect, made perfect. But the best part is that we will enjoy the presence of God undistracted forever. That's the best part of that. That's the fullness in that temple with everyone else together. That's where we're headed. That's the fullness. We're all going to get that once we all get there. And that is what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. And that's why we take communion, to remember what Jesus has done for us. You might wonder why we come back to Jesus during a sermon series on the Holy Spirit. I mean, after all, we land on Jesus every week, and we've done that for 20 or so years. I mean, effectively, we've had a 20-year-long sermon series on Jesus. Can't the Holy Spirit get a front seat for a while? It's a good question. The answer is this. The Holy Spirit himself constantly points us to Jesus. That's one of his primary functions. Look at what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 15, verse 26. Jesus says to his disciples, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, so the helper is the Spirit, he's gonna, send, he's gonna come, who proceeds from the Father, what does he say? He, the Holy Spirit, will bear witness about me. That's Jesus talking. So the Holy Spirit will bear witness about Jesus. The Holy Spirit's primary function in the life of us believers is to point us to Jesus. That's not all he does, but it is what he does. He points us to Jesus. That's his function. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says something similar. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit produces worship in us. And worship toward who specifically? Toward Jesus. It would be dishonoring to the Holy Spirit if we neglected to consider Jesus right now. The Holy Spirit was sent to enable us to worship Jesus in the first place. The Holy Spirit is honored when Jesus is honored. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. And the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out in my blood. Take this in remembrance of me. So, in honor of the Holy Spirit, let's take 
communion, remembering what Christ did for us. You should know that communion is only for Christians. If you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're here, and I do hope you feel welcome here. During this time, we ask that you think and pray about what you're hearing, but abstain from taking communion. As I mentioned, I'll be in the back with several others. We would love to pray with you or just talk things through with you if you're curious about things. But communion is only for Christians, for those who have accepted Christ's gift for us. But indeed, let's do this in remembrance of him. Let's take communion now. Before we do that, I'm gonna pray. Lord, thank you, Holy Spirit, for dwelling in us collectively. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for pointing us to Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to learn about you, Holy Spirit, about your work. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for pointing us to the work of Jesus, what he did on the cross for us by dying for our sins so that we could be made holy, although we were not holy. And as Cruz prayed, we do, we continue to sin. We don't like that, but we do that. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to continue to make us more and more holy. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for making us holy in the here and now. We await on perfect holiness. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us to make us holy. In your name we pray, amen.